Welcome to The Glow Show from Grow Lab Organics, hosted by Charlie Lyons. Yes, 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 people. Hope you're all well. Welcome to another week of The Glow Show. The last few years have felt pretty weird. It's kind of felt like time has been moving incredibly quickly, but also incredibly slowly at the same time. And I guess right now it feels like things are back to just speeding up and flying by at the kind of normal rate. Uh, maybe that's me and how I'm feeling, but regardless, it's time to settle down for another journey into the power of cannabis. This week, we are thinking about retail. It's quite interesting in the UK at the moment. We're not in an adult use zone yet. We do have obviously private cannabis clinics. There's lots of stores and retail facilities that are focused on growing and CBD and hardware, vaporizers and all of the paraphernalia that comes with that. But in North America and other parts of the world on the retail side of cannabis, uh, the dispensary model and their bud tenders are very sophisticated and growing like crazy. I think back to some of my early experiences in California going into, I, I would say, you know, dispensary by name, but felt a very different experience compared to what they're like today. Sometimes specifically, I think it would have been in San Francisco or LA. I kind of went to a, a door and there was a still felt very dodgy, bit of a weird vibe. I genuinely still felt like a criminal going in and uh, you kind of had to know people a little bit. Uh, there was that kind of hatch in the door type vibe. Uh, I remember I got handed a, a menu, which was kind of a laminated print off that looked like it was just made by someone's kid, brother or sister. Uh, everyone in the store was pretty wasted. And then you counter that with the last time, I guess, before the world got locked down, I was, I was in Vegas and the difference was just, it was like night and day, uh, a very elite retail experience, loads of technology helping uh, you learn and scroll and view products. There was really knowledgeable people that were super friendly. You know, the bud tenders were flitting around the store, helping customers, explaining stuff, uh, getting products out. There's beautiful display cases. And I could have spent hours in there, frankly, learning and sort of just looking at different products and packaging. Uh, we're excited for a glow store in the future. Obviously, we're not there at the moment, but you know, we are starting to see moves in the in the industry into the UK and cookies. Uh, they're taking a retail space, I think, on Regent Street, which is a pretty bold move to say they won't have any THC products, but I guess their strategy there is a early brand move with CBD and all the rest of it. So we'll have to see how things play out, but we've got some pretty cool ideas and concepts flying around at Glow HQ for our store. Uh, so watch this space. And that leads us nicely on to this week's guest, Adam Beerman who is infamous in the world of cannabis, one of the founders of MedMen. He blazed a trail with his business partner to set up that dispensary chain and pretty much helped redefine uh, society's relationship with cannabis in the States. You know, they went from um, those sort of murky uh, early dispensaries that I mentioned to taking prime real estate uh, across the US and finding themselves rubbing shoulders with um, you know, amazing world famous brands in massive retail destinations in America. So they did a lot to uh, change perception of cannabis. You know, when you see a MedMen store next to Gap or anything like that, it is definitely changing the way you uh, experience cannabis from a retail perspective. 
So there's going to be a lot to dig into on this one. And without further ado, Adam, can you give me a quick highlights tour of your journey in cannabis so far? Okay, great. Well, hi, it's uh, nice to be here. I'm excited to be here with you today. The question was proudest moments uh, yeah, in, just in business, be- in life. Totally open, Adam. Like, you know, we, uh, we leave that one to the guests, just three of your proudest moments in your journey so far on this planet. Well, today, I, as I sit here 40 years old, I guess my, my proudest achievement is that I'm here. I think that it's really important uh, that I acknowledge that to myself. There are so many um, situations between, you know, here and where this all started for me, where, you know, being here today, you know, it was possible that this wasn't going to happen. Um, and whether that meant, you know, I wouldn't physically be on this planet anymore, or whether that meant I would be in jail. So, you know, being here for sure is, is, is number one, uh, having my family and having my family intact and having my family, you know, be such, such an amazing thing that lives by itself, like us as a unit, just having that at the core of everything that we are and that we do and like the center of our universe and of us being so happy being together, you know, that on top of being here, just being here, that would be number two for me. <sighs> third proudest cannabis one when i when i when i started on my journey officially on the business side which i say was like 2009 when i started uh, not a single state uh, in our country had legal cannabis um, not a single state had access to legal medical cannabis uh, and the same was true i believe the world over and I guess I, my, my third proudest uh, achievement as I sit here today is I played a role in this arc of history where we transitioned from, you know, no access to cannabis uh, legally to a place where now we have, you know, the majority of Americans having access to legal cannabis, you know, the country directly to the north of us, Canada having legal access to cannabis for its entire country, you know, and then for our country to be on the precipice of doing the same and having other countries in the world now that have legal medical marijuana and legal adult use marijuana. I think, you know, just having played the role I played to be here today and look at the world and say, wow, you know, that access now exists. And I know I played some part in that happening. I think that's, that would be right there as my, yeah, as my third. Very cool. It's that sort of once in a generation kind of moment, right? So uh, excited to explore how some of those <clears throat> stories developed in your, in your path with cannabis and MedMen and all the rest of it. But you, you started off, you know, throwing parties, didn't you? You had a real baptism of fire with a pretty significant band, I think, for your first show. I wondered if you could just tell us about that adventure that kind of kickstarted your entrepreneurial journey and what lessons you learned from that experience. Uh, this is the, the Black Eyed Peas show you're that's talking about when I was yeah, in high school. So yeah. for sure in high school, uh, my senior year, that was the first time I, I had created as an entrepreneur any type of business venture you know, um, the way that I, I created that business that put on those parties as, as, as you referenced them. So back when I was 17, 18 years old, senior in high school, 2000, no, 1999, uh, 1999, I was renting out, uh, party halls and 
big conference rooms kind of things in Masonic lodges and uh, uh, different places around uh, the city to have parties for kids from high school, you know, dance parties and got this to a place where I went for it. And uh, I convinced the Black Eyed Peas, I convinced their agency actually to sign a contract to bring the Black Eyed Peas down to San Diego to play a show in Oceanside. Where, where were they in the in their kind of rise to fame? Because I, I guess they're, <laughs> they're, they're a William Morris act, right? So William Morris don't screw around with with small with chicken feed acts, right? So, were they were they kind of at the peak of their powers or on the way up? And no, they were on their way up. Um, yeah. I remember we were promoting the show, and uh, I think it was their first big hit. That's the joint. That's the jam. Mm-hmm. Turn yeah. that shit up and play it again. That was the song that was out uh, on on the radio, yeah. uh, and we were playing that song at all the local high schools promoting the show. <laughs> so anyways, we put on the show, we, we, I signed a contract to bring them down. We rented out this roller rink that we turned into like a dance floor. And we definitely, you know, fronted, uh, you know, signing, uh, that we would owe all the money at the end of the night. You talk about big lessons and I, I talked about this before, but the biggest lesson uh, of that event was we, we, we got the, the right act to show up. We marketed it correctly. We even charged correctly. You know, we really executed well. And we missed this, you know, one small piece, which was we didn't have security and everybody snuck in. And so there was no money at the gate at the end of the night to pay for everything. Uh, Lesson number one in entrepreneurship, uh, it doesn't matter how fast you're sailing your boat, how big your boat is or how opulent it is. If there is a hole uh, in your boat and it is in the sea, it will sink. Yeah. Um, And, you know, this small hole. Yeah. The security hole really screwed us over. but. It was a great lesson. What did it feel like at the end of the show to like face up to like a will I am and be like, sorry, dude, <laughs> I haven't got any money. There's a really good end to that story. <laughs> the 17 year old kid doesn't know how to deal with that. Right. Yeah. That's in that's, you know, really facing shame, you know, which is something that I think, you know, especially in, in our greater society today. Right. is such a such a driver of so much decision making and also so much angst um, and unnecessary. Uh, misery, but you know the shame that a teenager has facing that, right? It's something that what a great lesson for me. Yeah. Um, but the better part of the story is because we don't have the money to pay them, and we don't have the money even to pay the limo driver to take them home. The the kid that put it uh, the show on with me, my partner at the time, he drives them home, wow. uh, and I find out fifteen years later that he builds a relationship and becomes their manager he becomes and is their manager too and all the way through their international superstardom. That's incredible. Um, yeah. So <laughs> the way I found out, I didn't even know that happened. Wow. Uh, and the way I found out was he, he passed away. Yeah. A, a few years, uh, a few years ago. So, but anyways, right. Like you have to let these stories play out. Yeah. Um, but at that time, that teenage kid, yeah, mm-hmm. that was, that was quite a lesson. Do you think you're, um, were you good at learning lessons or did you kind of make mistakes repeatedly or, you know, what was the kind of operating mode back then? I think that learning how to lose is something that I didn't grasp until later Mm. in this journey. Learning how to lose is probably the greatest superpower, you know, that I'm able to create or, you know, that I'm able to harness for myself, you know, uh, in this first 40 years of my life. And it's not something that I was able to harness until recently. Mm. So no, you know, 
um, along this journey, I definitely acknowledge um, these circumstances, but I think being honest about it, you know, it's very hard for me to put myself there and, and learn that lesson, acknowledging the mistakes that were made that put me in that spot in the first place, right? That doesn't come yeah. till later. Sure. You kind of went from this, you had this really kind of confident start um, that, you know, obviously was a, like you say, it was a hole in the boat moment, which is quite a cool thing. How did you then move from doing these parties in the halls and all the rest of it into cannabis? Was it kind of a really calculated plan that you executed or was it more of a kind of happy accident? You know, you referenced earlier about being in that moment of contributing to uh, cannabis becoming much more available for those that needed it, whether it be for medicinal purposes or adult use. Talk to me about the origins of that. Yeah, there's there's uh, a decade in the middle um, that that is uh, that is me and baseball. Actually, I, I go to college and play baseball, and I end up dropping out of college to start a sports agency representing baseball players. Nice. And uh, I I do that for five years, and you know that ends up leading to me being involved with marketing, and that leads to this meeting with this woman in Hollywood. Um, who runs a marijuana dispensary. So there's like this 10 year period, you know, when I go to college after high school, when the the party business is over, where I'm out there getting my MBA, if you will, in the real world of business. And then, you know, I'm, I wake up and I'm, you know, 28 years old, and I am in a medical marijuana dispensary in Hollywood, California, with a blue haired woman, um, Mm -hmm. who is telling me that, uh, you know, she's doing astronomical revenue numbers out of a very tiny, very dirty, um, <laughs> very unappealing store shop, uh, mm. a storefront. You know, that interaction changes changes my life. And that's the beginning of me uh, in cannabis. So for, from the from this sort of chance encounter with the purple head lady, how did you then, you know, it's one thing to kind of be in that environment and go, look, there's a there's a lady here that's making significant money monthly. How does that then turn into the sort of the kernel of the idea that then goes, right, we're going to set up some dispensaries and, you know, grow that business to, to become MedMem? Yes. First of all, blue. And I'm sure it was a, it was a real conscious choice. So let's not say purple because I know yeah. she chose blue, um, but she had bright blue hair. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think, the easy, lazy, and lie of an answer there is like, yeah, you know, I we, we got introduced through this woman and we thought we could do it better. And, you know, before we knew it, we had all this massive success. Like, no, of course it didn't work like that. Right. Um, you know, how does it go from that to, as you say, a kernel, you know, that or a seed that sprouts mm-hmm. into this and in, into what it is today? There, there's a lot that goes on, right? There's, yeah. you know, uh, me being in a spot where, you know, I am completely destitute, you know, uh, no money, no car, you know, sleeping at my parents' apartment and I have nothing to lose. I have to be in that moment after being exposed to what this woman, you know, was doing. It happens to be that I'm in LA and down the street from me, I find a landlord that's willing to rent to me for, for us to open a medical marijuana dispensary. This is in 2010 when Mm -hmm. you weren't licensed and finding a landlord was like, you know, a needle in a haystack that would rent to you to, to sell marijuana out of. And so like that had to happen. And, 
you know, we had to learn a lot. We had to open a lot of stores. We had to win a lot, lose a lot, learn how to lose. We had to really get into politics and understand how these laws were being made and, you know, how laws were going to be made so that we could plan to be ahead of it and make it a real business. There's a lot, volumes and volumes. But, you know, ultimately, we find ourselves for a short period of time, a blip in history, you know, at the tip of the spear Mm. in this you know, movement, right, where the one of the foundational kind of underpinnings of our society is shifting, which is, you know, a very stigmatized, illicit, you know, made to feel, you know, evil substance, right, is becoming mainstream and accepted and legal, right? And, you know, uh, the fact that we were lucky enough to have gone through that journey, you know, it's just, it's, yeah. it's incredible stuff. Did you, you know, you, you talked about, obviously you had an eye for an opportunity. Plus, like you say, you'd kind of done your, uh, your master's in business through that baseball period. When this kind of opportunity came along and you sniffed it out, and I'm sure there was a lot of sort of, you know, fortune, luck, you know, cho- choose whichever way you want to describe that, um, that component. Combined with them, were you feeling like this is such a once in a lifetime kind of moment? leaning into things like the law did some of that come naturally to you or were you just so excited about this kind of you know this this opportunity that you you just literally went in with all 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 you had it's all of that right i mean i i think for me when i got into it because i literally had nothing to lose right i was in a position where i could be all in Mm. right unreserved completely radically you know all in and then with throwing myself all in you know, one of the first things that happened was I, over the first couple of years, I got into a position where I could afford my own life. I could afford an apartment and a home and, and groceries and taking my girlfriend to the movies. Right. And so being all in, you know, with nothing to lose, put me in a situation where I had a baseline of a life now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was super comfortable for me. And then, you know, I get to this other point in my journey where, you know, it shifts and it becomes this calling for me. And at that point, I really throw myself all in completely like, you know, moving on from it needs to provide my basic, you know, for my basic financial needs. And now it becomes, you know, the world is going to be better as a result of this. I am, you know, here on this planet, you know, and at this point in time, I can do something about this. I feel passionate because I believe in it myself. And, you know, this is what I've been around on this earth for 30 plus years. You know, I've been here specifically, you know, to be able to execute in this moment, right? It goes from basic needs to that kind of with a snap of a finger, a chance encounter. And, you know, I think that's what really, that's what creates MedMen. That's what, you know, shifts, you know, that that's where we become impactful really in history. In that kind of, you know, like you said, it was uncharted territory in many ways, you were building the plane as you were flying it. How did you know what to do? Was it gut instinct? Was it trial and error? Did you have some significant advisors or mentors? And what other things were going on around that time? Like you, you kind of referenced a little, a little tease of it maybe at the start, like crime, was there danger? Did you feel at risk? Were people trying to come after you? Like, just give me a flavor of what it felt like in that period and, and some of the things that you had to do to make the right decisions. Well, first of all, nobody makes all the right decisions. And certainly in such an environment as as we were in back then, um, we had to be okay 
uh, you know, with a lot of wrong decisions, right? The, the key there is making the decisions. Yeah. Um, I, I think that there were really two things that were helping to inform, you know, me and us along the way. And I also think when I look back on like the first 30 years of my life setting me up for this, you know, those things come from the first 30 years. You know, one of those is I had just witnessed the, the boom of online gambling and online poker specifically in our country. And I had a first, you know, I kind of had like a, a, a really good seat. Uh, my, my family was involved in, in some of that business. I had a really good seat to watch that unfold. And, you know, in the online poker and online gambling boom, you know, you had this industry come out of nowhere overnight and you had something that was stigmatized and unavailable, you know, flip to available and destigmatized and mainstream. And you had the big players that weren't ready to take advantage of it. So you had startups come out of nowhere and capture all that market, but it wasn't MGM and, and it wasn't Win and it wasn't the rest of the big uh, uh, casino groups, right? It were, there were these nobodies. It was party poker and full tilt and, and, and poker stars, right? Yeah. Who before that was a nothing. Um, and I watched that unfold. And as, as exciting as it all was, it all also came crumbling down because there was no investment made in permanence. There was no investment made in helping make sure the laws created permanence for these new businesses. These businesses flourished financially and they ran away from the United States and they thought they would just, you know, do business kind of outside of, you know, this environment. And that never works, right? And ultimately, you know, who is going to own that space? It'll be MGM. That MGM, right, is the only ad I know now out of Vegas right? Mm -hmm. They'll own online gambling. Um, but I think there was a chance for these first movers to have owned it if they had made an investment in permanence. So I got to watch that unfold right before this happened. And then the other thing is that, you know, I, I, I think my baseball background and my poker background, which I played poker to support myself through a lot of this early part of my journey, right? In both of those activities, it's all about odds. It's all about percentages. If you hit the ball uh, squarely and you line out, you can't be upset because you did everything right. Um, and it's just like in a poker hand, you know, if you make all the right decisions or think you made the right decisions, yet you lose that hand, you still have to wake up or, or move on to the very next hand and, and go through the same process. And mm. in both of those activities, right, failures built in, right? It's about decision-making process. And I think that really prepared me for this uncharted territory where it was, there is no right decision. So what do you do, right? You use your intuition to make a decision with imperfect information. And then you sit there and you want the consequences of that decision so you can learn from them. So you can use your intuition to make the next decision. And that circle, that cycle is something that at this point in my life, when MedMen's really taking off, you know, that's a cycle that I'm really leaning into, right? I'm really, I'm wanting to learn from consequences. I'm okay with the decision not being right, but I'm making a lot of decisions at a moment in history where, you know, it's very hard for anybody else for lots of reasons to make decisions because marijuana is federally illegal, because, you know, there's this over, this overlying threat of, you know, the federal government coming in and shutting everything down and seizing stuff, you know, because of the criminal element that, you know, still maintained a grip over, you know, marijuana sales in this country and the distribution of marijuana 
around this country, right? Because of all those things, it's very hard to make decisions and take action mm. in that environment. And I was just, you know, set up to be able to go, you know, operate. And it was the right moment in history where all the people before me had laid the groundwork so that, you know, society was ready. So you've got a dispensary set up. It wasn't called MedMen to start with, was it though, right? Was it was it Treehouse? Yeah, our first dispensary was called the Treehouse. Yeah. That was open in 2010. And, you know, maybe we had 10 or 20 dispensaries between then and when you have, you know, the first MedMen dispensary that the world gets to know. So I, I remember when I was... Um going to San Francisco a lot and the early dispensaries I went into were probably more like the the blue-haired ladies set up I I didn't often feel that safe going in them you know they kind of were seemed pretty dodgy they were a bit like you know kind of knocked to get in and you know you went in a room and there wasn't any windows and there was a sort of a menu that was sort of passed over and it all felt a bit shady still and then you know fast forward to the MedMen style experience. And I think probably the last time I was in the States before COVID, I was in Vegas and I popped into Planet 13. And these retail experiences now are, you know, they're absolutely incredible, you know, beautiful display cases, technology everywhere, really friendly, informative bud tenders. Uh, it's, you know, comparable to a Nike or a Nike Town or a Apple store, right? So did you have a clear vision for MedMen as it formed and grew? Did you know the kind of retail environment you wanted to create? Talk me through that evolution. Yes. I, we always knew from the time we opened the Treehouse in 2010, we always knew that we were striving to make shopping at our stores available to everyone. And that was our North Star from the beginning, whether it was just you know, I wanted to make it available to everyone. So people driving down the street from my one store would come in and buy cannabis so that we'd have enough money to make our rent, right? Or whether it was, you know, our Fifth Avenue store that MedMen ultimately builds on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan mm -hmm. that exposes the entire world that's visiting Manhattan on a yearly basis to what the future of weed looks like, yep. right? The, the objective, what we're, what we're aiming to do with this changes and evolves and the way the stores look change and evolve and the streets they're on change and evolve, yeah. but the North star doesn't, right? It's about mainstreaming marijuana. Mm -hmm. So when you say that, you know, marijuana stores now feel like Nike towns or Apple stores, you know, I get goosebumps because, yeah. you know, nothing else really matters when, when you ask me the three proudest accomplishments, right, of my life or however that question went. You know, the third one was that there's going to be permanence in marijuana being part of society going forward. And you just compared the stores that sell weed to Nike and Apple to mm. institutions, yeah, which was unfathomable before MedMed. Yeah. But that is that is how I see those experiences you know they are comparable you know i mean i even the you know the knowledge that is housed in those bud tenders you know and we've, we're, i think it's worth talking about that now because i think they play such a key role you know because obviously in europe at the moment we're in a different phase we are just starting to get into the sort of frontier space of you know we've been legal in a medicinal uh, way in the british isles in the uk and other areas in Europe are coming online. And obviously, we will get to adult use. You know, we hope it's sooner rather than later. 
but it's just really exciting to be at this point where you know it's all coming through but we are going to have a whole range of customers who have not been exposed to cannabis you know you've got obviously a very sophisticated cannabis community in in the UK and in Europe you know uh, it's it's well known well documented but you have a lot of people that won't have used cannabis won't have you know bought weed from a drug dealer um, and don't know anything about strains and terpenes and the language of cannabis you know they won't know what the different products are what the form factors are so there's a huge amount of education and exploration to be done and i think these stores these retail environments and the sort of bud tender role is going to be so key as we move from medicinal into sort of adult use in your stores was that something that was really uh important to you the role of the bud tender like i mean tell me about how uh, key they are in that experience in in the MedMen stores. Yeah, and and I think what's really important is time frame. Mm. You know, time frame in the arc of of history and specific to you know this this evolution of mainstreaming of marijuana, and even more specific to location. Because as you said, hopefully, you know, the UK is going to go through the same thing that we went through. It might just be seven years later, right? Yeah. So. You know, I, I think looking back to, let's say, you know, MedMen from the time I, I started it to the time I left, the three most important investments we made, one were political investments, right? Helping to demonstrate to the political system that the industry was permanent. The industry was not flighty. The industry was going to invest, you know, into society, right? And if you're going to be a multi-billion dollar industry and a player, then you have to be active, right? Um, and investing politically. So I think that was number one. Number two was the locations. The location on Fifth Avenue, the location on Abbott Boulevard in Los Angeles, the location on, you know, in South Beach in Miami, right? Mm. The investments in those locations, by being in those locations, what we're showing you is when you drive by to go to work, we're showing you that this is now on the same street next door to Walgreens. Mm. And the same way you think about Walgreens, you think about marijuana dispensary. It happened at that time to be MedMen, yeah. right? And that's the first time in their minds that mainstream society you know, starts to liken the gap to MedMen. And if yeah. MedMen's weed, then weed's mainstream. And yeah. then the third most important investment we made was in the people, mm. right? And so- once you have the store on Fifth Avenue or in South Beach or in Las Vegas, you know, the first store when you leave, you know, McLaren Airport, when you have that store in that location, right, you're showing that person, I'm mainstream, I'm not scary, I'm inviting you in, come see what the future is. When they show up at your doorstep, the person that interacts with them that very first time is going to change their life. Yeah. And that person may change their life for the better or they may ruin this person's life because the interaction isn't good enough for them ever to come back and they miss out on the benefits of access to cannabis, right? And so we made this tremendous investment into the people and all of these investments we made, they were for the first time, right? And so before MedMen, there were no stores on those streets because nobody would pay those rents and the landlords would never lease to cannabis, mm. right? We could make it work. Nobody had made the investment in the people before because, you know, nobody had treated this with a 10, 20, 50, 100 year plan. These, yeah. these workers were unionized, right? These workers had health care. You know, we treated this like a real company, mm -hmm. right? And as part of that, we invested in the people.
anyways, it's a long way of saying, I appreciate that you look at it the way you do now, you know, validates what so many thousands of people work so hard on. Um, And for the UK, you know, that's going to be needed at the outset in order for this to work as well. Just, just, I just have curious, you know, because as you say, like, um, you know, for any of anyone that's been to LA or Miami or New York, you know, you pretty much um, listed off like the preeminent sort of retail destinations, right? Fifth Avenue, Abbott Kinney, et cetera. How did you, if, if you were saying that, you know, these weren't the kind of uh, destinations where real estate would, would rent to cannabis companies, how did you go about convincing to take those leases? Everything, most things are impossible until somebody makes it possible. Mm. Right. And, and MedMen just happened to be that organization at that time that did all of this for the first, right? It was the first organization to raise capital the way we raise capital. It was the first, first organization to, to, to have enough credit to sign leases the way we sign leases. It was the first organization to raise money to buy real estate for marijuana because most of the time people wouldn't lease to us and we had to buy the buildings. Mm. We then created the first REIT when we spun out that real estate and we have, you know, the first ever marijuana REIT that's just holding, you know, marijuana real estate. You know, how how did we pull off launching the first REIT or having the first billion dollar marijuana company in the US or having the first company listed? And there's so many firsts. I don't want to take too much credit because it's one of those things that like if for generations, you know, people are hammering at a wall and then you show up and it's your turn to hammer. And while you're hammering, the wall comes down. You can't sit there and say, look at what I did all by yourself. Right. Mm, so yeah. MedMen was first. I just happened to have the hammer at the wall at that time. Mm. How did we do it? All the people before us. And then, you know, again, like I think just for this point in history, I, I might have just been the right person at the right place at the right time to know how to or be lucky enough to swing yeah. my hammer at that Not one that thing to make down. the wall come down. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's a good analogy. We definitely feel the cracks are in the dam over here. And, uh, you know, we're hoping for the same breakthroughs, you know, in the coming years as we, we hopefully get towards, um, you know, dispensaries and adult use and, you know, getting as many people access to the plant in a safe way as possible. You know, we, we, we are aiming for that, you know, just on, on the people thing, because, I think this is just so important, you know, that, like you say, it's the experience in any retail environment can be made or broken by how good your um, the person is you're interacting with. What were you looking for when you were hiring those people and what makes a great bud tender, in your opinion? First of all, the right kind of people showing up and wanting the job is was never a problem. You know, this is one of the great things about this plant and the people that are, you know, around it. Uh, is that the people that wanted at that time to work in a MedMen store, these were the most overqualified, overly excited, overly passionate and intelligent people we could ever ask for, mm-hmm. right? That just wanted to be a part of this movement. And I think, you know, in the UK, you'll find the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at the beginning, that's that's who this will attract. You know, the question is, and I think this is what we this was us first through this wall is, let's say there's all that excitement. You've got to be able to offer these people and their families a steady enough opportunity to leave working wherever they're currently working to come join you, Mm. right? These aren't out of work people. You know, these are in demand people. 
So how do you do that? Well, you have to set up a co- an organization that can provide health care and provide benefits mm-hmm. and can show them that you, you're not going to miss payroll and you know can show them growth opportunity and can show them that you're going to educate them because they've never worked in this industry before. Otherwise, they don't have any confidence that they're going to be successful. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think it's just that what we did was we made the investment in the education. We made the investment in hiring the the executive talent from some of the biggest retailers in the world to help you know replicate what goes on in big retail for cannabis and it just that we were the first people to to do that i think that's been replicated now with you know most of the organizations at least here in north america which is great so yeah i mean we'd invested in that it wasn't that oh it was so special finding the right people the right people came to us i think mm. what was so special about medmen was investing so much in those people yeah that's cool you know, I, I had a couple of other questions around that because I, I was reading some reports this week about the big numbers in terms of job creation in the US specifically from the cannabis industry. And what, what advice, you know, this is obviously going to be something which starts to happen over here. As you say, is there is so much knowledge, sophistication, passion from the cannabis community who've kind of been living in the legacy world, you know, transferring into this sort of, you know, the new, the light, let's say. What advice would you give to anyone that's looking to get into cannabis as a career change? Because uh, I, I fully expect the same thing to happen over here, where as the industry forms and we go past the sort of, um, you know, this was the stigma falls away and this becomes the industry it should become, it is going to be a huge driver for economic growth from job creation. So what advice would you give to people that, yeah, like you say, they, they might want to leave their uh, old career behind and start something new in, in a frontier industry like cannabis? Wow, that's a great question. The best advice I would give somebody sitting across from me is be honest about how entrepreneurial you truly want to be. And that's going to determine at what point in the chronology of the mainstreaming of this, you're going to get involved. But the worst thing you can do is not be honest with yourself about how entrepreneurial you want to be and start the journey. Because if you don't understand that part before you start the journey, you're going to waste a lot of time and you may even burn bridges. And this is going to be a tiny world. Mm. So the most entrepreneurially minded of the group, whether that's because like when I got into it, they have nothing to lose. That's because they've already accomplished so much that it's just purely about passion. Maybe they're in a traditional place in their life, or maybe they just, you know, regardless of why, right? For those that truly want to take a leap, what I would say is what's awesome about this is it doesn't matter where you fall on the supply chain of talent, right? It doesn't matter if you're, you know, if you currently work at retail, let's say you work inside the mall at retail and you are passionate about weed. Well, the minute that there's retail, you know, in your state or country or city, you're being an entrepreneur to leave your job and go take the same pay at a dispensary, right? You're not testing the waters. You're being an entrepreneur because what's happening is you're giving yourself the chance to gain the skill set and experience that will make you a leader in an industry that is forming while you're alive. Yeah. Because every year you're in that position, you're a retail. Now you're the assistant manager. Now you're the manager. Now you're the regional manager. Every year you are that. You're the first person in history to be that, right? One of the coolest stories I have from MedMen is that, uh, you know, when we were, when we were uh, 2014, 15, it was the first time we were raising money 
and we had a private equity business. We were raising private equity money. We needed a lawyer. You know, we put an ad out or whatever we did, and we end up hiring this lawyer from San Diego. And he was a young lawyer who was entrepreneurial, right? In his mindset, he had no attachments, nothing to lose, very sharp, willing to bet on himself. He packed his car up and he drove to LA to come work for us. Mm. Um, he didn't have a place to stay. And, uh, you know, that was, let's say, in 2015. So that was seven years ago. Yeah. So seven years later, right? And he started, he took a pay cut. So seven years later, that individual now is the world's, in my opinion, world's foremost expert on cannabis MA, foremost legal expert. I don't think there's another lawyer that's seen as many M&A deals as he has, as papered up, as many crazy M&A deals as he has. He's, he's the foremost mm. M&A lawyer in the world for weed. Seven years after packing up his car, being you know, basically fresh out of law school. Why? Because he you know, admitted he was entrepreneurially minded at that time. And he said, well, if I'm going to go be a lawyer in weed, I can go do it right now. Yeah. And if I do it now, I'll be the first in history to have this experience. And he can go do whatever he wants now, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter where you come in. If you're in that mindset, come in now. And if you're not in that mindset because you've got things to protect, you've got, you know, you need to be more conservative, then don't lie to yourself, but track it now and come in when it's time to come in. But the one thing that I believe at the core of my soul, and I believe fundamentally with all my logic, is that once you turn this thing, there's no going back. Mm. And you've got this period where this irrational fear still sits with people. So, you know, once you legalize medical marijuana and create a commercial program in the UK, or once you reschedule or whatever, you know, events have to happen so that stores pop up, grows pop up, manufacturing pops up, and it's legal, there's no putting the cat back in the bag. Yeah. Right. And there'll be this period of irrational fear where people say, yeah, but it's not you know, it's just, it's not safe enough. I heard from my uncle that they can still come after you or mm. like, no, once that happens, there's point of no return. So that's where the opportunity is. You're pretty safe. You're past the point of no return yet. Most of the uh, people in your field are still going to be too shy and scared to yeah. jump in. I just wouldn't mind to get a, a, a comment from you on this. So we saw over here that cookies are obviously, they're taking a, a retail space in the UK. So this is quite interesting because it's obviously one of the first large North American companies entering uh, the UK, going for like a bricks and mortar store on the high street. You know, they're not going to obviously be able to have anything THC based, but I'm presuming they're just going to have their brand there and CBD. <clears throat> and I, I kind of think it's a, I think it's an interesting move because they're obviously just positioning their brand. Uh, as you said, it's the, it's the similar thing. Once you come onto the, the key retail destinations, people start to learn about you and, and understand what you're about. And while I'm sure that they're, they'd love to be stocking you know, their, their THC products in, in the store, they won't be able to. But do you think that's a smart move to take, to make an early move and get in now uh, so that like when things do change over here, obviously there's a huge, huge addressable audience once we get into adult use in the UK. I mean, there's a huge medicinal market because we've got at least 1.4 million people using cannabis every day for medicine right and that's all served currently from the street right from the legacy market 
Do you think that's smart from cookies? Well, first of all, Berner, who is the idea of cookies and who is the founder of cookies, uh, deserves all the credit in the world for what he's built for uh, not only the business, but the brand. And for the fact that you are on this podcast in 2022 asking me this question about a name and a brand that just five years ago, right, he was toiling with uh, in Northern California. So, you know, hats off to him as one of the few uh, people who had built a brand, right, where we're having a discussion from the other side of, you know, of the Atlantic. Do, uh, the question is, do I think it is smart? I, I don't know anything about the business intention of that, let's call it flagship retail location for them. Mm-hmm. I know what an amazing podcast you put on. I assume you charge like half a million dollars every 30 seconds for an ad. <laughs> so just the fact that you've talked about them for a minute, they've already gotten $2 million of marketing out of it, right? So I, exactly. I, I, don't know, I, I don't know what the intention is. I don't know how they've invested in that project. All I know is you know, when, when we built MedMen, we got to a place where if you were wearing a MedMen sweatshirt um, and you were in most airports in the world, you would get a look or a thumbs up or a wink because people knew what that was. Sure. And it was the only weed brand in the world at the time, you know, that I think that was true about. And I think now we can say that cookies is at that same place. And I think that like that's the important part of the story. And for us to have permanence, we need a couple more. You know, we need other people making these investments and making bold moves to build brands. Everybody else has been largely shy. And that's a nice way to say scared to invest in building brands, because the truth is uh, there hasn't been any incentive. Nobody's been rewarded for building brands so far. Mm. But that has to happen, you know, for us to have permanence in this space. Yeah, I I totally agree. And, you know, the more and more sophisticated customers, patients become is they're looking for companies that share their beliefs and all the rest of it so um you know the brand side of it like what you really stand for what are your values what's your mission is going to be really important in the coming you know years and decades because the battleground will be brand once we're through this kind of the stigma's fallen away and all the rest of it i just wanted to like a few more questions before we wrap this one adam and i've been really enjoying you know hearing all of your views on everything it's it's been fantastic cannabis consumers uh, can be very sophisticated. Did you find that that was more at the start where you had a more uh, knowledgeable crowd that were really into their strains? And as you became more mainstream, did you feel that you were attracting more of that kind of kind of curious customer that needed education? Was there a shift or was it always that people were just super passionate and you know knew their stuff? Oh man. Well, Here's me keeping it real, even about me and my people. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm a huge stoner, unapologetically. And uh, so I'm going to talk about myself. As sure. someone who smokes weed every day, I'm not going to be able to sit here and taste test five different strains, you know, with my bong and, and tell you, here are the terpene. Here's what I can taste in the different terpene in this strain versus that strain. Like, I'm a stoner. I'm a functional stoner. And I, I'm being honest with myself. I'm lying if I'm pretending, right? Hey, this tastes good. Oh yeah, I can taste that. But like, I can't tell the difference, mm. right? Not unlike, you know, my friends who are big into wine and have big wine collections and all the rest of it. But if I poured the wine in the glass and put it next to them, like they could be like, oh yeah, this one tastes a little more this or that. But mm. like, 
they can't tell you what bottle that is. Yeah. So I, what I think calling myself and my friends out is I think there's a lot of bullshit when it comes to, you know, when you say, you know, sophisticated or aficionados, yeah. you know, people that are into weed that are stoners, you know, telling themselves that somehow they have to be at like, you know, a master sommelier level of understanding of weed to be a proud stoner. Right. Yeah. And it's like a badge, like, yeah, I'm, I'm at that level. It's like, no, you're not. Yeah. And so I found that fascinating through my journey to watch naming conventions of the strains change over time, but knowing what the true genetics are, understanding how much a grower actually knew of the true genetics versus just, Hey, it came from a cut of this a long time ago, but mm. it's gotta be 500 things by now. Like, and then watching consumers react to what it's called on the shelf, like it's marketing, right? Yeah. And so I think, you know, there's this marketing around strains, but the nice part is that we, we have, and we will have more and more science, right? At the end of the day, you feel a certain way based on certain compounds uh, in the plant, right? Mm -hmm. And you get high a certain way based on certain compounds and those chemical compounds, they can be broken down by science. Right. There's a future where, you know, I smoke this because I like the I, I, I like the fruity flavor. Right? right. And we know that this is the terpene that makes the fruity flavor. And I'm smoking 25 to 27 percent THC with 3 percent CBD and 0.0 percent CBN, whatever. Right. Like we'll get there. But right now it's so exciting that the people that have been in it, they want to brag a little bit like, oh yeah, man, I only smoked that OG Kush. Like, mm. do you even know what that is? And then you have the newbies that want to be too scared of it. Oh, will you please hold my hand? I'm too scared. Like, don't pretend. Mm. Please don't pretend. Everybody stop pretending. Walk in and say, hey, this is new for me. There's never been testing like this before. Let me understand what the cannabinoids are. Let me understand the differences in what you're offering and how I'm supposed to feel. And I'm going to try it. Yeah, that's true. Picking up something out of that as well. Just talking about, I think I've, I, I saw an ad MedMen ad. I was in, um, I think I was actually coming out of Vegas or maybe, maybe it was San Francisco. I can't remember. I, I picked up a magazine. I think the MedMen ad at the time was a, a beautiful house. Uh, looked like it was in the sort of Hollywood Hills with a, leopard or a lynx and it, i didn't at the start i was like this again it back to my kind of apple nike this ad felt more like it should be in vogue than high times or green entrepreneur or whatever i was flicking through i just wanted to know like how do you where do you think we are on the spectrum of you know a heavily stigmatized um plant through to it being just like anything any other medicine that people don't even think oh my god it's a it's a drug i think that all the decades of investment in changing laws in North America that paid off in the, the decade that was, you know, 2010 to 2020, I think there was a huge shift towards the end of that decade. And that shift, you know, that started 1960s, right? That work really started or, but, but let's say that that shift happened. And then at the end of that shift, which was like our laws and the enforcement of those laws, right? And the stigma that comes from just how things are classified, right? The shift in that, you had MedMen pop up in all of the most important retail locations in the United States, which, which exported brand and exported cool and exported trend around the world, right? As you mentioned, whether it's South Beach or the Las Vegas Strip yeah. or Manhattan or wherever. So 
you know, at the end of this kind of title shift in the underpinnings of how cannabis is classified in our country and in North America, you've got the first brand, right, that is recognizable across these locations, which in the consumer or in the public's mind then automatically goes to, well, if I saw them on Fifth Avenue and I saw them on South Beach and I saw them on Abikini, then it must just be like Gap now, right? Which means mm. marijuana must be like Gap now. So mm. I think you get this extra push at the end with MedMen and then you get no progress since. Mm. Um, I, I think it's been, you know, a couple of years where the markets went to shit, you know, money dried up and, you know, there's no incentive. Nobody's being rewarded for building a brand mm. right now, right? People are being rewarded for hunkering down during tough times and producing cash flow at all costs, right? Mm. That's not brand building time. So no leopards, no photo shoots, no, you know, yeah. like that's, that's not where the investment is going. Nobody's being rewarded for that. So I love to hear you ask the cookies question because maybe that's starting. Yeah. Or maybe cookies is next. But, you know, I don't think we're any closer than we were, you know, in 2019 or 2020, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, it's been a, a strange kind of holding pattern for a lot of companies, not just in this sector, but in, in others as well. Adam, a couple of last ones, which are kind of my, yeah. some of my staple questions. What do you think is the biggest area of areas for improvement in the industry at the moment? Or what do you kind of dislike about the cannabis industry right now? The thing I dislike the most about the industry right now is the shame that the industry and the captains of the industry still have around their involvement in the space and around their involvement with the plant. Let me give you an example. The CEO of, I'm, I, you know, I don't know, a, a beer, what, what is a beer company that you would refer to in oh let's in just go let's go with Budweiser right that's an easy one great AB InBev yeah so exactly. um you know the CEO of AB InBev you know on the day that they have some huge announcement will be seen toasting other executives at the office you know with Budweiser and mm. you know in an interview when he sits down. He's got, you know, a Budweiser strategically placed somewhere for like the product stuff. And they're talking about it. He's talking about when he drinks beer and his family experience. And, you know, Budweiser's always been there for him. Like they are, they are excited about their product. They are participating in the world of their product. And that product's part of who they are, right? Otherwise, they're not fit to lead an organization, let alone an industry around that product, <laughs> right? But if you take marijuana uh, today and you take the leader of or, you know, pick an organization that you guys in the UK know, a public company, I don't know who, right? Organization mm. X. Yeah. You do not have a founder or a CEO sitting down and talking about cannabis and how it's changed their life or cannabis and how, you know, in lieu of alcohol, they actually consume cannabis every day mm. because the alcohol was adding up calories and it was messing with their liver, and it's a healthier way to live mm. um, to go home and smoke a joint at night than to go home and have a drink. You will not find that imprint anywhere. Mm. In fact, you'll find the opposite. You'll have cannabis CEOs talking about the fact that they're not users. Yes. Yeah, so you have the CEO of Pfizer drug company saying, when I get sick, <laughs> I don't use Pfizer drugs. Like mm. what? So the shame mm. that still exists whether you're, you know, at the level of there's a spotlight around you as a leader of a company or whether you're the investor, right? And you're part of 
a larger pool of money and you're taking some of that money and investing it into cannabis, those investors, for the most part, are not bragging about it to their friends. They're not sharing that when they're talking to their colleagues. That's some hush-hush pocket of money that they're making sure they don't miss out on the next big wave with. But they're not going to go shout it from the rooftops. Mm. So the thing I, 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 I that kills me about this industry is the shame, right, that those people who are leading this industry have around the, the, the plant that's at the core of, of what this is. So if I give you a crystal ball, you're looking out to the coming 12, 24 months in cannabis. What do you think are going to be some of the most exciting developments that are coming, coming our way? Uh, New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ listings for US-based cannabis companies. I think that's the single most important uh, moment uh, coming in the next couple of years in regards to our trajectory, you know, ending prohibition, mainstreaming marijuana, mm. destigmatizing it and creating permanence for it. And I guess just finally, Adam, like what are you what are you working on next? Like, you know, obviously you're in the industry, you know, you're obviously like have lots of different avenues to pursue. What's what's coming up for you personally? A lot of yoga. Nice. <laughs> nice. A lot of yoga. Centered. And a lot of weed. Yeah. Um, because I'll proudly talk about how it makes me a better person. You know, as far as business goes, just you know, I I, I love being involved with what's next. And, you know, I've got this drive to, you know, push as far as I can from where we are today to and mm. through mainstreaming. So I'm having conversations in different parts of the world with you know, in places like where, where you are, where, yeah. you know, this wall is about to fall and how do we help create what's next there? And, and here domestically in the U.S., you know, involved in some projects, uh, specifically at retail, creating what's next in retail. Now that we do have a couple of years under our belt and yeah. our consumers are more educated, what does that look like next? That's something that uh, Andrew and I, uh, co-founder of MedMen and my partner yeah. still, We've, we've been working on we're really excited about well listen i think that's a great place to wrap this up because i'll be very very excited to see you know what comes next from you and and the, your crew as well so all that remains for me today adam is to just say thank you very much for spending some time to talk with us on the glow show and um you know i'll be looking forward to catching up with you again soon hey thanks for reaching out and uh inviting me on it was uh it was awesome and i look forward to coming back Thanks, Adam. Wow, what a ride that was for Adam and his team. I was fascinated to hear about taking retail units on Fifth Avenue and Abbot Kinney in LA, you know, world famous destinations for shopping. To have cannabis dispensaries there just shows how far things have come in the US. And, you know, I really, really hope that it's not so far for us now in Europe. And hopefully we can enjoy some of those uh, retail experiences uh, with cannabis in the British Isles and beyond in the not too distant future. Next week, I'm going to be joined by Mr. Anuj Desai, one of the nicest guys in cannabis. Many of you will know him as the irrepressible host of the Cannabis Conversation, which was one of, if not the first podcast uh, focusing on the European cannabis industry. I kind of think of Anuj as the Pete Tong of cannabis. You know, his voice is instantly recognizable. It's going to be nice for me to turn the tables on him and have him in the hot seat rather than him in his usual role as the host of the show. So 
looking forward to that it's going to be a uk and european focused show so do tune in and until then stay safe stay well and i will see you in the future the glow show we believe in the power of cannabis